You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying if they call me Mr. Boy's best friend, you have no style. You can park all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've spent a weird amount of time actually watching the Olympics when I didn't see a second of the summer, mostly because I want to try and figure out how curling works without actually having to look up the rules. So that's been weirdly entertaining. Anyway, this week on movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, because let's be honest, they haven't been two sentences long since like the first couple of weeks. We've got Moonfall and the instant cinematic classic Jackass Forever. I'm a sucker for space movies, and I knew Moonfall likely wasn't going to be a great movie because, well, it came out in February. Moonfall is your standard disaster movie with disaster movie logic and a sci-fi kicker by the dude that brought you Independence Day, that horrendous Godzilla movie from the late 90s, 2012, and Day After Tomorrow. He's basically just combining his two different kinds of the meh movies he makes, which I did not know going in. I'm convinced the only thing that made it watchable was the three leads, which were Halle Berry, Patrick Wilson, and the dude who played Samuel Tarly in Game of Thrones. The logic is batshit, the timeline of the events makes zero sense, the product placements are about as subtle as a heart attack, and the film needed its two B storylines either combined or nixed completely. The film does have some rad visuals, the director, he's good at that, so it keeps you just engaged enough to not hate yourself for taking the time to watch the movie. At least that's what I'm telling myself. It's basically pizza and ice cream for your eyeballs. And yes, I saw Jackass. I was a big fan of the show and the movies, much to the chagrin of my parents when I was a younger individual. But as you know, I had very little content restrictions as a youth. I even saw the third one in 3D while I was in college. There's nothing much to say. It's it's a Jackass movie. It's definitely a Jackass movie. If you liked anything about them up until this point, the spark is still there. If you hated it, this is not going to change your mind. And they're still as crazy as ever. The vibe is still there. Also, weird amount of full frontal, like way more than the other ones. So do with that what you will. Now, on to the weekly topic. So for the better part of the last like year and a half, we've spent a lot of time talking about an overall pretty narrow area of film history, save for maybe the month we did on Asian cinema. Honestly, when looking at mainstream major studio cinema up until the last 30 years or so, you'd never know that anybody but a bunch of heterosexual white dudes had a story to tell on the silver screen. Hollywood has a horrendous diversity issue race and gender wise from the beginning of cinema all the way up until today. You know, it's bad when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, a.k.a. the people that put on the Oscars, considers women, that means all women, as a minority. I am a white, heterosexual, cis gender female, and I'm considered a minority in Hollywood. That's how deeply the diversity issues run. 
So, this month on the Tinsel Factory for Black History Month, we're discussing four heavy hitters of African-American cinema whom revolutionized the industry in their respective eras, but whom a lot of casual cinema-goers might not know a ton about if they know whom they are at all. I'm super bummed my book I ordered didn't make it in time for this episode, so I had to make do with the internet for this one, which I'm super bummed about, but beggars can't be choosers. But this week, we're going over the life of the world's first African-American director who was called to the profession by a need to tell stories of his time in the hopes to inspire others, Oscar Michaud. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Born on a farm in Metropolis, Illinois on January 2, 1884, Oscar Devereaux Michaud was one of 13 children born to Calvin S. and Belle Michaud. Michaud's father, Calvin, was a former slave, likely owned, based on their surname, by French-descended slave owners. A few years after he was born, Michaud's parents moved to the nearby city so that their children might receive a better education. Young Michaud did attend a well-established school for several years before financial issues forced the family to return to their farm. This change of scenery caused young Michaud to act out, and his father, sick of the angsty teenager in his house, eventually sent him away to do marketing in the city. Michaud thrived in this new gig because it allowed him to meet and speak to scores of different people not available to him out on the family farm. The social skills that he would gain during this time would one day serve him well when he needed to attract financiers for his films. In 1901, at the age of 17, Michaud moved to Chicago to live with his older brother. There, he would start working as a waiter before doing assorted jobs at stockyards and steel mills. After being, quote, swindled out of $2 by an employment agency, Michaud decided to become his own boss. His first business was a shoeshine stand, which he set up in a wealthy African-American barbershop away from other Chicago competition. There he learned basic business practices and how to save money. He later became a Pullman porter on the major railroads, which at the time was considered prestigious employment for African-Americans because it was pretty stable employment that paid well and it enabled travel and even more interaction with new people. Michaud banked a boatload of money while gaining contacts and knowledge about the world through travel. When he left the position, he had seen a pretty good chunk of the United States, had a couple of thousand dollars to his name, which was a shit ton of money back then, and had made a number of connections with wealthy white people who would help his future endeavors. In 1904 or 1906, depending on the source, Michaud moved to Gregory County, South Dakota and became a homesteader. He did this through the U.S. government's Homestead Act, which allowed citizens to acquire a free plot of land to farm in the name of Manifest Destiny. Surprisingly, considering the era, the acts included African Americans in this deal, though discrimination kept many from actually doing it. Michaud's experiences on the homestead would inspire his first novels and later his early films. In the early days of farming, Michaud wrote articles and submitted them to the press about his time on the farm. The Chicago Defender, an African American newspaper still around today, though only digitally, published one of his first articles. In 1910, Michaud married Orlean 
Orlean McCracken to the chagrin of her family. Orlean herself was quickly disgruntled as she felt that hardworking Michaud did not pay enough attention to her. She would give birth to a child while Michaud was away on business, and then she reportedly emptied their bank accounts and disappeared. Orlean's father sold Michaud's property and took the money from the sale. After his return, Michaud tried unsuccessfully to get Orlean and his property back. He would eventually remarry to actress Alice Russell in 1926. Oscar and Alice remained married for the rest of his life. With his life shaken up extremely, Michaud then decided to concentrate on his writing. Altogether, he would write seven novels. In 1913, 1,000 copies of his first book, The Conquest, The Story of a Negro Pioneer, were printed. He published the book anonymously, though it's not known why he chose to do that. The Conquest was semi-autobiographical and focused on his experiences as a homesteader and the failure of his disastrous first marriage. A big giveaway for the fact that this was a semi-autographical book was the fact that the main character was named Oscar Devereaux. Michaud had a specific goal in mind when he wrote this book. He hoped to inspire other African Americans to, in his mind, realize their potential and that they could succeed in areas where they had not been historically welcome. One of Michaud's fundamental beliefs was that hard work and enterprise could make any person rise to respect and prominence, no matter his or her race or gender. Plus, he had grown frustrated with the lack of diversity on the frontier. This was a golden opportunity for a man of any race or creed to have a corner of the world that belonged to them, and Michaud was surrounded by just a bunch of blue-collar white people. If tended properly, anyone could potentially gain financial success out of a homestead. To further this cause, Michaud wrote over 100 letters to his cohorts in the East, calling them out to the West, but only his older brother would answer the call. In 1918, Michaud published his third book, The Homesteader, which he dedicated to Booker T. Washington, a leader in the African-American upper echelons of society, and in the early days, Michaud would actually sell this book door-to-door. -door. The Homesteader attracted the attention of George Johnson, the manager of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company out in Los Angeles, the first studio founded that was dedicated to African-American cinema. Because African-American audiences were pretty much ignored at this time, there was a huge demand for films made specifically for black audiences. After Johnson offered to make The Homesteader into a feature film, negotiations broke down relatively quickly. Michaud wanted to be directly involved in the adaptation of his book as a movie, and that was not on the table if Lincoln ended up making the film. But just because George Johnson wasn't going to make the movie meant that that would stop Oscar Michaud from trying his hand at this new art form. Oscar Michaud founded the Michaud Film and Book Company out of CU City in 1918. His first project was a motion picture called The Homesteader. The Homesteader, though, is actually based on his first book, The Conquest. 
The homesteader follows John Baptiste, a homesteader in the Dakotas and the only African-American in the region. One day, Jack Stewart, a Scotsman, arrives with his single daughter, Agnes, whom doesn't know that she is biracial. Baptiste meets and falls in love with Agnes. But because Baptiste is black and Agnes is presumably white, their love is forbidden by law. Baptiste gives up on true love and marries Orlean, the daughter of a black preacher named McCarthy. McCarthy is a vain and deceitful man, but he is at first impressed by his daughter's new husband. What Baptiste doesn't know, however, is that McCarthy really likes everyone yes-anding him and telling him how great he is, which is not Baptiste's vibe at all. Feeling slighted, McCarthy bans his daughter from seeing her husband, and in her grief, she commits suicide. Baptiste is actually framed for her murder, which is not a murder at all, it's a suicide, by McCarthy and by Ethel, which is McCarthy's other daughter, who, like her father, is a real a-hole. In the end, Baptiste clears his name and returns to his land in the Dakotas, where he finds Agnes. She discovers her lineage, and the two learn that they can be together after all. Happy ending for our heroes. The film was produced, co-directed, and written by Michaud. It is believed by many film historians to be the first feature-length film made with a predominantly Black cast and crew for a Black audience, and thus the first example of a feature-length race movie. Most of the filming, if not all, took place in Winter, South Dakota. Michaud had raised the money to make this film by selling shares of his new company to his business acquaintances. Unfortunately, as was the case of all too many films made outside of film studios during this era, The Homesteader is considered lost, but it would establish Michaud as the first independent African-American feature film director. So I mentioned the term race movie a second ago, and I want to explain what that is real quick because it's a very important part of African-American cinema and a big part of Oscar Michaud's contribution to cinema as a whole. Race film is the term used to describe a genre of film produced in the United States between about 1915 to the early 1950s and consisted of films of different lengths produced for Black audiences featuring predominantly Black casts. Altogether, approximately 500 race films were produced in all. Of these, fewer than 100 remain because... Most, if not all, were made outside of the realm of the studio, so preservation wasn't really on anybody's mind back then. The reason modern audiences even know as much as they do about race movies is thanks to BET, whom would play them in the 1980s on their network. Race films were very popular among African-American theater goers, and their influence continues to be felt in cinema and television to this day, as they inspired many future filmmakers to pick up a camera and try their hand at telling their own stories. They'd be doing Oscar Michaud proud. That was a major goal in pretty much all of his works. In the South, to comply with segregation laws, race movies were screened at designated black theaters. Though northern cities were not always formally segregated, race films were generally shown in theaters in black neighborhoods. Many large northern theaters segregated black audiences into the balconies or by later showtimes. While it was rare for race films to be shown to white audiences, white theaters often reserved special time slots for black moviegoers. This resulted in race films often being screened as matinees or as midnight movies. During the height of their popularity, race films were shown in as many as 1,100 theaters around the country. 
And as always, to be fair, and there are some of you that like to point it out, but I don't mention those who came before. Michaud was not the first African-American to make a film, but he was likely the first to make a feature length film. He was also real good at marketing, which was crucial when getting credit for something, especially back then, especially for Michaud. If he had not been good at marketing, we probably wouldn't even know as much about him as we do, which still isn't a crazy amount anyway. The thing that made The Homesteader as popular as it became was that Michaud had depicted realistic relationships between black and white people and depicted black people in roles rather than subservient to white characters. As a result, the film gained praise from critics, one of them calling it a, quote, historic breakthrough, a creditable, dignified achievement. Michaud followed up this successful production with his second film, Within Our Gates, which released in 1920. And according to some, this film sought to challenge the heavy-handed racist stereotypes shown in director D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation. Now, one day we'll do a full thing on D.W. Griffith because he was actually a pretty important figure in early cinema. But guys, the dude made a super racist ass movie in 1915. Not only that, it's a super important film for film history because it was the first major feature length motion picture. It's ironic its place in film history when the film itself is filled with deplorable historical inaccuracies of the era it depicts. Here's a SparkNotes version of the whole Birth of a Nation mess. Once upon a time, this hella racist dude named Thomas Dixon Jr. wrote a hella racist book called The Klansman, which, among other things, made the KKK look like the heroes of the Restoration Era. D.W. Griffith, an actor turned biggest filmmaker of the silent era, was a Southerner himself, and his father had been a colonel for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Griffith thought a scene of Klansmen writing to save their fellow racists would make a hella cool scene, so he set out to make this movie pretty much much based on that to start. In it, the white South is portrayed as the poor victims to black people who just want to rape and plunder now that they've been freed, and it was the KKK that saved the day and restored order to the Reconstruction Era South. For those of you not in the United States, the Reconstruction Era was the era after the American Civil War when the southern states that had seceded were integrated back into the Union. It was a chaotic time, yes, though not in the ways portrayed in the book. The film was shown at the White House for the president, which kind of weirdly unofficially gave the film kind of like a historical seal of approval from the United States government, which is really messed up considering the film's contents. But it's just a movie, right? Well, no, because here's the problem. Some people back then, not unlike now, will believe just about anything that they see up on a screen if someone says that the contents are true. Nobody will go and read a goddamn book. And not just the one that this freaking movie was based off of. This film was marketed as historical fact when it by and large was not. The film was chock full of just straight out lies about what happened historically and made African-Americans frankly look uncivilized and violent for the sake of being uncivilized and violent. As we see all too often with misinformation today, these falsehoods can be incredibly dangerous and it was much the same a hundred years ago. 
Black leaders, especially those in the NAACP, had begun planning for a nationwide protest campaign against Birth of a Nation long before its release. Unfortunately, these protests did very little to change the contents of the film, where it was shown, or the way it was marketed. Over the next 20 years after the film was released in March 1915, The Birth of a Nation went on to become the most profitable film ever produced by Hollywood, replaced eventually by Gone with the Wind in 1939, which ironically was another film about the Civil War and Reconstruction era based on a novel by another Southerner that told another story of another group of hearty Southern Cavaliers and their lovely ladies and the poor Confederate South. When adjusting for inflation, Gone with the Wind is actually still the highest grossing film of all time. In today money, it made like over $3 billion. Oscar Michaud's second film, Within Our Gates, was released in 1920, five years after the release of The Birth of a Nation. Despite the claims by many, Michaud would later state that he made Within Our Gates as a response to the widespread social instability following World War I, not in response to Griffith's film. Also around the time of making Within Our Gates, white mobs had killed numerous black people during the Chicago riot of 1919, burning residential districts and leaving thousands of black citizens homeless in the process. So racial tension at an all-time high in the region at that time. Within Our Gates is a story of Sylvia Landry, a biracial school teacher during the era of Jim Crow. In a flashback, Sylvia is shown growing up as the adopted daughter of a sharecropper. When her father confronts their white landlord over money, a fight ensues. The landlord is shot by another white man, but Sylvia's adopted father is accused and lynched, as is her adoptive mother. All of this is shown on screen. Sylvia is almost assaulted by the landowner's brother, but instead discovers that he is actually her biological father. Before the flashback scene, we also see Sylvia traveling to Boston, seeking funding for her school, which serves black children. They are underserved as they live in a very segregated society. On her journey, she is hit by the car of a rich white lady. Learning about Landry's cause, the woman decides to give her school 50K, which is quite a bit of money now. It was a of money back in the early 1900s. In the film, Michaud depicts educated and professional people in black society as lighter skin, which he did to represent the more elite status of mixed race people whom most white people were more used to seeing as they were the majority of free African-Americans before the Civil War. Poor people in the film were, by and large, dark-skinned. Michaud again did this to contrast the experiences for African-Americans who had stayed in the rural areas compared to those who came to the big city. Some feared that within our gates would cause even more civil unrest, while others believed it would open the public's eyes to the unjust treatment of blacks by whites. But, you know, people were super uncomfortable having their prejudices shown directly to them. Protests against the film continued until the day it was finally released. Because of its controversial status, the film was actually banned from some theaters. Michaud had also struggled with the film board to get the film cleared because of the depictions of lynching and attempted rape, which, by the by, 100% was in Birth of a Nation too, but, you know, double standards. 
Within Our Gates finally released in January of 1920 and was instantly popular with Chicago audiences. It was because of the censor board screened in several differently cut versions depending on the market. Evidence of cuts remain today in the form of film stills of scenes that do not appear in the single surviving copy of the film, as well as viewers' descriptions of scenes that are not present in the surviving version. A little fun fact, that only surviving print was discovered in Spain in the 1970s. A little bit later in his career, Oscar Michaud would adapt two works by Charles W. Chestnut, one of the first major African-American novelists. Those were The Conjure Woman from 1926 and The House Behind the Cedars from 1927. The latter, which dealt with issues of mixed race and passing, which is a term used to describe those of mixed race origins, being able to pass as Caucasian, created so much controversy when reviewed by the film board of Virginia that Michaud was forced to make cuts to have it shown at all. He would remake the film with sound in 1932, but renamed the film Veiled Aristocrats. The silent version is believed to have been lost entirely, and only about 45 minutes of the sound version has been found. Michaud shot much of Veiled Aristocrats at his mother-in-law's home in Montclair, New Jersey. Lorenzo Tucker, whom played the lead role of John Tucker, was a popular leading man of the race film genre. He was actually dubbed the Black Valentino because of how handsome he was. Oscar Michaud was one of very few Black independent directors to successfully transition to sound, and he managed to do so largely because of his drive and, frankly, his talent for promoting his work because they really lacked the style and polish of other films of the era. While on promotional tours, Michaud used his completed films, which he often distributed by hand to theaters, to secure financing for his next film. Despite being able to get financing, it wasn't a lot of money, and his work wasn't anything that could hold a candle to the films Hollywood was putting out by this time. Misha was often forced to cut costs, which resulted in technically inferior films with poor lighting, next to no editing, sloppy line delivery because they couldn't do a lot of takes, continuity problems, and not that great sound. You'll hear an example in the next break once that sound became a part of the deal. Despite all of the issues he faced, though, Misha offered an alternative to the stereotyping of Black people by Hollywood, a.k.a. his characters weren't all maids or nannies or, you know, the help, and successfully operated outside the mainstream film industry during the studio era, which was no easy feat for anybody, much less a person of color. Altogether, Michaud had a major career as a film producer and director. He made over 40 films, which drew audiences throughout the U.S. as well as internationally. His later works were widely shot in New York City at Biograph Studios. There, Michaud notably worked with Robert Earl Jones, a.k.a. James Earl Jones's father, whom you probably know as the voice of Darth Vader and Mufasa, amongst many, many, many other things. He is a very good actor. Michaud's films were made during a time of great change in the African-American community and finally featured contemporary Black life while dealing with the complex relationships between Black people and white people in a realistic manner, as well as the challenges for African-Americans when trying to achieve in society. Michaud didn't shy away from topics like lynching, discrimination, rape, mob violence, or economic exploitation. They were all front and center in many of his films. He showed the 
depths of the African-American experience of the era in a way that no one else did at this time. After decades as a successful indie filmmaker, Oscar Michaud died suddenly on March 25, 1951, in Charlotte, North Carolina, of heart failure while on a business trip. He is buried in Great Bend Cemetery in Great Bend, Kansas. Michaud had been wildly forgotten and underappreciated, but in the last few decades, he has gotten some well-deserved recognition from the film industry. It didn't help that most of his films, even ones made during the sound period, when they kind of had an idea of how to preserve shit, are considered lost. In 1986, the Directors Guild of America honored Michaud with a Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2010, the U.S. Postal Service issued a Michaud commemorative stamp. In 2019, Michaud's film Body and Soul from 1925 was actually selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Since 2017, there's also been plans in the works by HBO to make a biopic about him. He even has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for what that's worth. If you're ever in Los Angeles, the Academy Museum actually has a section dedicated to Oscar Michaud and the important role his films had for African Americans and cinema as a whole. There's even a copy of The Homesteader and examples of Michaud's advertising prowess. On a nearby wall, clips from his surviving works play. Oscar Michaud opened the door for a whole new group of filmmakers while showing black audiences of the day real stories about themselves, not just the stereotypes the major studios were putting out. He was truly, as his headstone reads, a man ahead of his time. Well, let's see what you can do. All right, take it out, Harry. And that's going to do it for this week. Hopefully I got most of the chainsaws out because naturally the second I started recording, freaking chainsaws, they're apparently knocking down the biggest tree in creation outside. Anyway, you know the drill. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe. Super important, guys. So that other people can find this podcast, that would be a massive help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I would super appreciate it. I've also got merch, which hopefully I will update one day. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the life of a woman whom quickly rose to the apex of her field only to be woefully discarded and typecast by Hollywood, forced to play the same roles for the majority of her life to keep her lights on. Next week, Academy Award winner Hattie McDaniel. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.